All right. Um, grab your Bibles if you would and uh, open them up. The first place I want you to open them up to is in Micah. And so it's going to take you a little while to get there. We're going to read a couple of verses. It'll, it'll be a little bit until we get there. But if you have one of the, well, the new Bibles um, that are in the back, Micah is on page. I'll, I'll give you, uh, I think it's 766 is what it is. So that way you don't, you don't feel funny looking for it. If you don't have a Bible, or 776 is what it is, Micah. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then uh, just, is Kevin, would you just, uh, Kevin's in the back. If you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand and we'll, we'd love to get you, get you one. You know, last week uh, was a beautiful um, time of worship together. And we launched, we had 161 people. And typically what happens when you launch a church, if you get 150, you're doing good. The next week it dips down, which it has. And then you just start, you start building and you start preaching the gospel and discipling to live the gospel. You start working to build relationships with unchurched people, which for all those of you that are in here that share a faith in Jesus as Lord, um, you're, you're, you're being a part of this is, is you telling us that you are joining us in the mission of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to people that don't believe. Our mission is inviting busy people to experience the peace of life with Christ. And so this is our aim. We've been reconciled to God, so now we're ministers of reconciliation. It's our heart. We don't, we don't tell people about Jesus or build relationships with people to tell them about Jesus to, uh, just to get them. We don't do a, a lot in regard to counting people. Me telling you how many people was here last week is the first time I've ever posted anywhere like a number. And... Um, and uh, so we're not really into like just numbers, but we are into being faithful with who God has called us to be as followers of Jesus Christ. Um, but one, one reality that, that strikes me is that uh, I have a responsibility to equip you to have conversations, knowledgeable, informed, uh, somewhat intelligent conversations with people that do not believe as deeply as you do that Jesus is worth following. And I walked away from last week thinking to myself, okay, we need to take one step maybe further back from me just opening the Bible and teaching it. And you know how much uh, I place value on the teaching of God's Word. Um, The living Word, Jesus Christ, is revealed by the written Word, the Bible. And so you know I believe that. But I do think it's, it's, it's important for those that are in Christ to be able to have intelligent conversations reasonable conversations with people that are not in Christ, to kind of connect what we feel deeply, our, what we describe as being our heart with our head. Now, this picture up here can kind of uh, help you think about the, the connection between our heart and our head, but actually what it is, uh, we don't think with this thing down here, do we? No, or we don't feel with this. We actually feel and think with two different sides of our brain. And so some of you feel deeply that Jesus is real, that he's worth pursuing, giving your life for joining uh, mission with, you believe that deeply, right? You do. This is why I don't have to even really explain to you why we sing songs, because you know, you come together, you're ready to sing songs. Something is in you. If I ask you to describe it, you might have a difficult time. You would just say, I don't know. I just, I just do. I just believe, right? I mean, that is, that is true. You just feel it deeply. And that is enough for you and I to have a really worthwhile conversation about our faith. It's enough for us to sit down and go, hey, let's pray about this and believe that God is real, that He hears, that He can provide the answers, that He wants to our prayers. That is enough. But the reality is 
many people, for many people, a deep belief is not enough to create faith conversations. Now, let's think about that for a minute. There are people all around you every single day who do not believe like you do. And when they hear of your belief, you know what they do? They say, well, that's what you believe, but I believe something different. And you would say, no, no, but I really believe it. And they would say, well, I really believe it. Enough to fly a plane into a building. Or to, 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 to do whatever ritual their particular faith system has told them to do. But we would say, no, 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 I really believe. And I hope that all of you are coming in contact with people who do not share your belief. I have relationships that I'm building right now with people that look at my uh, uh, following Jesus and believing him as Lord. And they look at that and they appreciate it for its moral or social contributions. They appreciate the fact that I love my wife and we have a fairly organized home and I love my kids and I want to teach a moral standard. They appreciate that, but they do not believe like I do. For me, just to say I believe it, it's not enough for them. We have to be able to have reasonable conversations with them. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that right now, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were to walk through that door. I'll be honest, I'd be a little starstruck. I am a human being. He would walk through that door. What if he walked up in front? He walked right here and he stood right there. And I looked up at him. And, and uh, he said to me, what, what are you doing? And I said, uh, well, I'm proclaiming the good news that in Jesus Christ, God is restoring. And we're inviting busy people to experience the peace of life of Christ. And he said, uh, well, what do, you, what do you believe? I believe that Jesus is the way to God. And through Jesus Christ, we're made alive in this life and given an inheritance for the next. And, and he would say, well, well, why do you believe that? I say, it's in the Bible. Why do you believe in the Bible? I say, uh, I, I just do. He said, well, I, I don't believe in the Bible. We would be locked right there, right? But I do believe it. Well, you believe it. But I, no, no, I don't. What do we do? Then what it becomes, he leaves, and all I've done is created this uh, dichotomy of I believe and he doesn't and there's no more conversation. But what if I could give him reasonable reasons to believe that the Bible is from a supernatural God? What if? What if in a very short amount of time I could say to him, here's why I believe the Bible is uniquely God's word. In fact, so unique that no other religious book that exists is like it. Not the Book of Mormon, not the Quran, not the Hindu scriptures, or not any other faith system. Not the, I've read all these sort of faith systems and, and uh, what their scriptures, particular scriptures are. The, the Church of Satan has a, a book, a reference book, like a religious book. I mean, every belief system has what they would consider some holy writings. But what I'm saying to you is that what if we could have a reasonable argument to say that this book is distinctly different than any other book that exists. Let me tell you something. If it's not, then you're wasting your time being here. There you are. So I'm going to start this series, and it's going to be a little different kind of a series. It'll be just three weeks called Think. And I want to invite you to a conversation of reasonable arguments for the truth of the Bible being uniquely God's Word, for the reality that God exists, and then we're going to talk about, from reason, uh, who Jesus is. 
in two weeks. Now, for those of you that are here that are a little skeptical, maybe you're new to the faith, for you, hopefully this will create conversations. For those of you that are believers that are here, I'll be honest, if you're here and a believer and not interested in this mission, uh, it, uh, it doesn't make sense for us. It doesn't make sense for us you to be here. I'm not trying to be unfriendly to you. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you want to get on mission with us, we welcome you. If not, to be honest, there, we, we can fill up this room quickly. We want people, believers, that are ready to get on mission with us. So hopefully for those of you that are believers, this will equip you. So I, I hope, I see many of you have brought something to write on or write with. You know, um, something has happened in the course of history uh, that has changed the way people think about faith and reason. Uh, you know what I mean by reason? Like just using your brain. Kind of moving uh, something that's linked to how you feel, but using your brain, the brain that God has given you, loving Him with your, with your mind. Something has happened in the history of our, um, our world called the Enlightenment. It happened in the 18th century, and the short explanation is that, that uh, science began to take off, and so people began divorcing uh, that spirituality from reason. And then they began positing reason against spirituality. And then what began, began happening in history is what's called progressive history revelation, where basically people started to believe that you no longer needed to believe in spiritual things because we started figuring things out. So in the first century, they needed a God to believe in because they did not know what we now know about science and about our earth and all of this. And so in our world today, there are people, and I'm telling you, most of the people you encounter are, function like this. They believe that your spirituality has some value socially, but they do not believe that, that your spirituality and your belief in the Bible is, is unique and, and worth really considering because really what they emphasize is the mind and the ability to reason. Really, the idol is a human's mind. So... Um, we, we must kind of think about this. And, and basically what's happening is that there are people, and this is the city. And, and one thing you should know about this shift that kind of happens in the city. And I know I'm throwing a lot at you, but, um, man, just buckle up. Here we go. Um, uh, in a city like this one, here's what's going on in Houston. It happens in every city, every major city in that's ever happened. In the, when Houston was created, they would not have created a neighborhood without two things, a church and a school. The, the, then the city got old, and uh, and basically crime came in, and dilapidated. It happens in cities. Uh, this is a generality, but this is what happens. The money moved to the edges of the city 45 years ago, and so they built neighborhoods with two things, schools and churches. Some of you are from Sagemont. That's what happened there. Um now there is this process called gentrification happening, which is happening in the city. So the brightest minds that uh, our world has are now moving back into the city. People are moving back into the city, but it's being developed by great thinkers and educators. And so what's happening is that the city's being rebuilt, but there is one thing missing. Churches. Churches. And so most of the churches that exist inside the loop are dead or dying. Uh, if you come over to La Oficina, where we, Andrew and I, uh, uh, work every day, and some of y'all have been up there, as you walk up the stairs, you can see through two of the buildings an old church that's, that's basically fallen down. And it's a reminder every single day that this is what's happened to the church in the city. So there are people in the city that church is no longer relevant, right? Because they're thinkers. They don't need faith. All they need is their reason. 
What I would like to say to you is that the Bible is uh, unique, uniquely God's Word. And if it is, we better learn it. We better devour it and memorize it and, and, and find uh, ways to, to include it in our lives and be renewed by the truths that are in there. Okay, so I, I want to I tell you about that in just a second, but there's three kind of notes I want to give. First of all, I do not rely on the ability to reason to persuade you to believe. So if you're an unbeliever or kind of a religious but not really like into Jesus, I do not rely on what I'm about to say to you to persuade you to believe. The Bible is pretty clear. The only way you will believe is if God draws you by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's by God's kindness that we're led to repentance and faith. So I don't rely on that. But I do think that we must be knowledgeable or reasonable in creating faith conversations. Second thing, uh, there are many well-meaning, deeply believing Christians who are ignorant. And I don't mean stupid. I mean ignorant, just not knowledgeable. And lazy thinkers. I don't want you all to be lazy thinkers. I don't want to be a lazy thinker. I don't want you to be a lazy thinker. Because what happens is people that are reasonable... Uh, they, they look at us and go, oh, they're just ignorant, stupid. But we can't be. Absolutely cannot be. Third thing. You, in your own faith, might not need a talk like this in terms of reasonability of believing the Bible is uniquely God's word, but the people you're reaching out to do. But this isn't one of those you're going to walk away with, going, oh, man, that was really stirred my own heart. But what it's going to do is going to equip your mind. So here are just two parts. The first of all, I want you to know that the Bible we have today is nearly identical to the original. Now, one issue that comes up when we talk about the Bible being uniquely God's Word is this issue of, is, is, is the Bible that we have today actually what was originally written? We don't have the what are called the autographs, the original documents of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. We do not have those. And I would suggest to you the reason we don't have them, the reason God has not allowed us to find them yet, is because if we did, we'd work, people would worship those, right? Because they're so holy and sacred. But what we do have are manuscripts. There are people that you might encounter, maybe some of you wonder whether or not the Bible is trustworthy, who would say, well, what we have today has been corrupted by politics and religious leaders and all that kind of stuff. But what I would say to you, no, the Bible that we have today in the Hebrew and the Greek is, is, is accurate. And it's, it's accurate to the degree that we could say it's just like or similar enough to the actual original documents okay this is important right because we believe the bible is god's word are you all with me okay so uh just so you know how, how did the bible come together this is a part of the conversation um uh think manuscripts okay so what we have now are these manuscripts which are basically copies of the originals copies of the hebrew copies of the greek okay so what what scholars have done is taken all of these different manuscripts, these different copies of the original, and compared them. And from that, they have uh, uh, identified what is believed to be 99.9% to the accuracy of 99.9% what was the original. Now, there's a group of people called scribes that have existed in history. Basically, their job was to copy the original. And they're the ones that wrote these manuscripts. Our first completed as we have it now version of the Hebrew Old Testament uh, was completed in 940 or 916 AD by a group of people called the Masoretes. Okay, now that seems late, right? That's 800 years or so after the completion of uh, the times during the New Testament. It seems, it seems long. So the question is, how did they do it? Well, these Masoretes, what they would do is they would copy, copy 
uh, with meticulous care the, main, the, the original and it, it, you know, what the copies that they had of the original. And then at the end, they would compare them. They would count um, uh, letters. And if they counted randomly, say they counted to the 70th, 70th letter in, in what they were copying from, and it wasn't the exact same letter as what they were copying from, they'd throw that manuscript out. And so some have said, well, no, uh, what we have now have is the Old Testament has been changed over the 900 years since we get the actual copy that we use today to translate to the English Old Testament until this event in history happened called the Dead uh, It's called the Finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It happened in 1947. There was the shepherd who was uh, near the Dead Sea, and he was in these caves, and he, there was these jars, and inside these jars were these manuscripts. Now, this is, some say the most important archaeological find in uh, maybe one of the most, well, the most important religiously and one of the most important ever. Because what they found were these manuscripts written uh, between the time, uh, written right around the turn, uh, about 150 B.C. to about, uh, right about that time. Okay, I don't try not to get it overcomplicated. So what they found was that these were copies of, like we have Isaiah, there were several hundred manuscripts, copies. And so what it basically proved is, and they compared what the Dead Sea Scrolls were, the earliest copies of the original, to what the Masoretes had put forward as being a copy of the original, and they realized that to 99.9%, they were exactly the same. So what this means is that the people that copied the Hebrew Old Testament throughout centuries uh, have done it with such care that it is close enough to the original. Now, this is important. Um, so what we get now in the New Testament is the same kind of thing. There are manuscripts in the New Testament, of the New Testament, some th thousands of them. Now, uh, the manuscripts, copies of the New Testament that we have, and by the way, um, like this is the, this is the Hebrew Old Testament here. Okay? It's a little tricky to read because it's all backwards. But this is, this is the Hebrew Old Testament. You can come up and read that later. Um, but, and then this is the Greek New Testament. And so what has happened is, uh, there are Hebrew scriptures that, and Greek scriptures that have been identified with 99.9% accuracy being copies of the original, okay? And, and so, and these have been translated into an English translation, and there's different sort of philosophies for translation, but this is how we get our English scripture. The manuscripts that were used to, 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 to identify what we believe to be our, the Hebrew and the Greek texts are accurate to 99.9%. I keep saying that because I want you to know that what you believe in your heart about the Bible, about it being true, is true if you use your mind. What we have. Did you know that there are some books in the, um, in the Bible that um, other religious, even Judeo-Christian religions, believe to be a part of the Bible called the Apocrypha? Some of you come out of a Roman Catholic background. Maybe you have read those. So a question is, why don't we as Protestants uh, see those as being inspired by God? Well, there are a few reasons, just quickly. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, there, there are, there's reasons to believe that they're historically inaccurate, they're theologically errant, in other words, they're not consistent, and they were not held by early Jews as being God's word. Um, and, and they were limited in their spread and geography. So, um, so, so now on to some fun. So... What I want you to know is that the, the Bible we have today is nearly identical, identical to what God revealed through people in its original, okay? This is, this is why we say it's holy and it's sacred and important. Um, 
we, we, this, we're lost on this sometimes in the United States because all around us, I mean, in this room right now, there's probably 300 Bibles. I mean, we're y'alls and I got some in boxes. But uh, my friend Jonathan is, is right here, just got back from Ethiopia yesterday. In, in, in Ethiopia, uh, not everybody has a Bible. Uh, it, there, it's considered much more because there's, it's hard to get your hand on. It, it's considered much more to be a sacred uh, sacred text, and its value is is understood more clearly. Wouldn't you say that's to be true, Jonathan? So, so for us, we should know that what you hold in your hand is sacred, which is why I say bring it. And if you're not bringing it, especially if you're uh, a man, uh, you're going to get a punch in the face. Okay, um, so, so the second, second part I want you to understand is that the literary nature of the Bible proves its uniqueness. Notice, I've not read any scriptures from the Bible yet to help provide evidence that it's unique. Um, the literary nature, the way it's just put together, tells us that it's unique and creates at least the opportunity for belief that God revealed it to people. What is, what's distinct about its literary nature? First of all, it was written over a span of 1,500 years. Uh, the New Testament, about 50 years, and then the Old Testament, the rest. It was written by 40 different men from every walk of life. Think about it. Moses was educated in Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Solomon was a king. Luke was a doctor. Amos was a shepherd. Matthew was a tax collector. All of them wrote from vastly different occupations and backgrounds. It was written in different places, three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Moses wrote in Sinai. Paul wrote in prison while in Rome. Daniel wrote in, while he was in exile in Babylon. And Ezra wrote in the ruined city of Jerusalem. It was written under many different circumstances throughout the course of these 1,500 years. David wrote it during a time of war. Jeremiah wrote at a time of Israel's downfall. Peter wrote while Israel was under Roman domination. Joshua wrote while invading the land of Canaan. And all of them had different purposes for writing. Isaiah wrote to warn Israel that God was going to judge them because of their sin. Matthew wrote to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Zechariah wrote to encourage a disheartened Israel who had returned from Babylonian exile. And Paul wrote addressing problems in the early churches in Asia and Europe. Yet there is one united theme in this book. God is restoring people broken, lost people to himself. God is inviting busy people to experience the peace of life with Christ. There's a united theme of redemption in this book. This makes it unique. You notice I've not even opened it up yet. These things that I've just said about it, anybody, any reasonable person could hear that and if they did their own study, they would realize that that is true. Any reasonable person. You see, some, some of you um, are afraid to build relationships with unchurched people because you wonder whether or not what you believe is actually true. I mean, let's just be honest. Some of you have grown up in the church. You've heard this your whole life. You know you're supposed to believe it. It's a good thing to do. It's moral to do. You get affirmed for believing it. But there's a part of you that wonders whether or not it is all true. Well, you're in good company. John the Baptist, the one that introduced the world to Jesus, even near the end of his life, said this about, to, about regarding Jesus. They said, is he the Messiah or is there one coming other than him? He doubted even at the end of his life. But the way we can have our doubt 
pushed out of our lives. It's by using our brains. I've held this one distinctive part of the uniqueness of the Bible to the end because I believe it's the most persuasive, at least to create conversation. There are many religious books that claim to be uh, inspired, but only the Bible has evidence of supernatural confirmation by way of prophecy. Now, I am a novice in the area of prophecy, okay? You would be able to find somebody that's much more knowledgeable than I am regarding all the prophecies in the Bible. But I do know enough about them to know that things were prophesied in the Old Testament hundreds of years before they could have happened that came true. There is not evidence of any one of the prophecies of the Bible that was wrong. You know, there's somebody that's prophesying there's this religious leader that's prophesying that the end of the world is going to be, I think, May 12th of this year. Is that the... May 21st. Sorry, Andrew's got it on his calendar. He's going to take that day off. Um, uh, and, but this, this person who has this uh, prophecy has, um, has prophesied another day earlier. He was wrong. And in, in the Bible, it says if you make a prophecy and you're wrong, you're to be stoned. So prophecy is a big deal to the Bible. And in the Old Testament... Uh, when there are things prophesied or projected, that only the only way it could have happened is if a, a being God who could see all of eternity backwards and forwards would know what is happening and could inspire authors to write it. And let me just give you a couple of examples before we turn to Micah and talk about the ones related to the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 26 it was written about 587 B.C., predict, uh, predicted the destruction of a city called Tyre. It, it, at the time, it was a huge city, very powerful, had two parts. It was a port city. Uh, it also had an island city, kind of like Galveston offshore. And probably nicer than Galveston, let's be honest. Um, so Ezekiel prophesied that, that Nebuchadnezzar would come and destroy the city. That many na- nations would fight against her, which at the time was unthinkable, unthinkable, but Ezekiel prophesied it. Well, sure enough, it happened. Some 200 years later, Alexander the Great came in after Nebuchadnezzar went in and destroyed it. Alexander the came, Great came in and laid siege to the city. And now it stands, at, or it doesn't stand, it's just, it's just rubble. And it is a place that was once a great ancient city, but now it lies in ruins, just as the prophet Ezekiel prophesied. Now, if you were to calculate the odds of that, just using your brain, it is at least possible that a God who can see all of history inspired the prophet Ezekiel to say it. I don't think it's enough to persuade you to believe, but it's at least possible it helps create conversations. That's Ezekiel chapter 26, for those of you that are thinking about somebody to have a conversation with. So here we are in Micah. There are prophecies in the Bible about, um, about Jesus. Micah is a little bit of an obscure book, um, but no less important than any other book of the Bible. Micah chapter uh, 5, verse 2. Listen to these words. It's in regard to a ruler who would be born in this little insignificant city called Bethlehem. Uh, But you, O Bethlehem, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, it's insignificant in the course of history. Listen to this. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. This is a prophecy made in the 8th century, more than 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're having a conversation about faith with somebody and they say to you, I don't believe the Bible's real, you just turn to Micah 5.2 and say, well, I don't know that this is enough to make you to believe, but at least to get you to consider that it's possible to believe, that it's reasonable to think that it might be true, Micah 5.2 prophesied hundreds of years before the time of Christ. That one would be born in Bethlehem, this insignificant city. We see in uh, in the New Testament that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's affirmed by Matthew and Luke. And I believe Josephus, who's not even a Christian, but a, uh, a Jewish historian, writes that this man named Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a fulfilled prophecy. Uh, the most significant place in the Old Testament... Um, uh, maybe a little bit of an overstatement, they're all pretty significant, is in the book of Isaiah. So if you turn back to the book of Isaiah, if you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 566. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, Isaiah prophesies about one who would come, a suffering servant. And he speaks about the suffering servant that would come to redeem, to re- restore, to, to save, uh, impoverished, broken, troubled uh, Israel. And he says these words in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 6. He was despised. Are you there yet? Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was born, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Does this remind you a little bit about what the New Testament describes as being the events of the cross? By the way, the events of the cross are affirmed not only by the New Testament, by this historian Josephus as it actually happening. This man by the name of Jesus was crucified, claiming to be king of the Jews. Verse 5, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Significant, huh? You'd say, well, maybe somebody went back after the time of Jesus and wrote this in there. No. Because of all the things found in the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947 by that little innocent shepherd, one of them was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. We discovered through identifying the type of paper it was written on and the type of ink and dating it that it could not have been written any later than, than 150 B.C. before Christ. We believe that Isaiah was written 700 BC, 700 years before the time that Jesus would come. He came and fulfilled all these prophecies. And you say, well, maybe it's just random that he that he fulfilled all these different this particular prophecy about the Messiah. 
But you should know there are dozens and dozens and dozens of prophecies about one who would come to deliver God's people. And we see that his name is Jesus. The Bible is unique. It's uniquely God's word. So, I will teach it. The months and the years to come, I will teach it faithfully. When I stand before you, if I ever, if I ever stand before you and, and teach something as God's Word other than the Bible, then you please find another church. Everyone, as fast as you can because I've gone crazy. And those of you that really love me, just tackle me in the front or something. Um, but I'm going to teach it because this is uniquely God's Word. God has preserved it and His sovereignty, His power has preserved it to ha- so we have what He wants us to have. It's proved unique in the prophecies that it's contained and in the, in the, the unity it holds. So we believe that God is real and that He's revealed Himself uh, to people inspired people to write the words that he wants them to write so that we could see who he is, who we are, so we could anticipate the Messiah in the Old Testament and then see who he is in the New Testament and then worship him as Lord. This is why the Bible is important. So if you follow Jesus for any time, I would say to you, you ought to be reading your Bible every single day or every other day, at least a few times a week. This is God's special revelation. So I will teach it. And I pray to God that you'll learn it. I pray to God that when you talk to people that do not share your own deep belief that you've done your homework, you worship God in your mind by, by memorizing verses that prove that the Bible is unique, by memorizing reasonable arguments like I've just given you that the Bible is unique. If we don't as believers, shame on us, right? Shame on us. I do not want to have a church that's ignorant. I'm not calling anybody stupid, but I mean uninformed. What I guarantee you is that I'll teach it. If you're willing to learn it, you'll be given the tools that you need to have intelligent, reasonable conversation with people about faith. It won't be enough to persuade them to faith. Only that, only God himself can do that. But at least it will create conversations of faith. If we can do that, we'll see God use this little fledgling body to change people's lives. Will you, will you join me on that journey next week?